Well, if you would turn to Jude, we're only studying chapter 1. Huh. Yes, you can think about that. We, we, uh, if you weren't here two weeks or three weeks ago, and if you're like me, jet lag is settled and I'm in a bit of a fog, uh, and I made one t- fairly significant typo error, which I will highlight today. I'm going to chalk it up for jet lag. That's not the best excuse, but we'll do it. Uh, we mentioned in verses 5, well, remember, Jude changes his whole purpose for writing. Remember that? Look at verse 2. Uh, well, verse 3, he says, Dear friends, although I've been eager to write to you about your common salvation, he's going to talk about soteriological issues. He has to deal with ecclesiological issues, that is, the issues related to the church, because he says there are individuals who are trying to undermine your faith, and I need to address that. In verses 5 through 8, he compares them to three groups. He compares them to the generation of Exodus, which is not a compliment. He compares them to the angels who crossed the, the wrong domain, mentioned Genesis 6, and he mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah, which is often a, a label given to sinners. It's even used today. And he says those three groups, and it's interesting, in looking at verse 8 with verse 4, we get an, a good idea of who we're dealing with. And the, these aren't folks that are outside attacking the church. They are in the camp. They're trying to to lead people away from the gospel and the traditional teaching. They're helping them find liberty in Christ. You can catch the line, can't you? Uh, You need to, Christ has set you free. You need us to live as as you see fit. And he said, no, 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 no. And so they're seen as immoral, rebels, slanders, and deniers of Jesus. And we'll come back to that today. So the first round, he deals with these three. He then, as you see there in your notes, a review letter B, he deals with Michael the archangel in that rather bizarre text where they're fighting over Moses' body, right? And we talked about that. You're not going to find that in the Old Testament. You can look all day and you aren't. Um, That scene is from the Assumption of Moses, which is a Jewish writing between the Old and the New Testament, which we call the intertestament period, all right? So that's... This is the time frame, the assumption of Moses. And you're going, oh, well, if he's quoting from that, does that create a problem? Because he also quotes, as we're going to see today, from First Enoch. By the way, there is no Christian canon that includes those two writings. You won't find them in the Roman Catholic Bible. You won't find them in the Eastern Orthodox Bible. You will find them in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is interesting. But Dead Sea Scrolls weren't canon either. Uh, that was just a collection of Jewish writings, which included canonical books, Hebrew uh, Old Testament books. Um, and, and so what do we do with this? And, and I just want to review, because this is very significant. And it, the text we're going to look at today, Jude quotes from First Enoch. We, we, we need to note that Jude never cites any of these books as Scripture. He never says, and the writing state, or this is the Lord stating. That's significant. Number two, he never indicates, Jude's not saying that the assumption of Moses or first Enoch are all inspired. It's just that there's a, a kernel of truth here that's in this writing that I want to highlight. Paul does this with secular philosophers, right? Acts 17 in Titus, he will quote secular philosophers and say, hey, this is true. Um, all truth is God's truth. Um, And and that's the idea that's being highlighted here, I believe. And so keep that in mind as we look at at 1 Enoch today. 
uh, a writing that was written again in the intertestament period between the old and the new. So where we've left off is now a round of three more individuals, and this is verse 11. So let's look at this. Jude writes, woe to them. If that, that term should remind you of Old Testament prophecies. Remember that? Or even the, even the book of Revelation. Woe, woe, woe. Uh, if you hear that word, if you see that te- in the text, you know something is about to be leveled against you. It's a sign of judgment. For they have traveled. Who are they? These are the false teachers uh, and those who follow in their path. For they have traveled down Cain's path and because of greed have abandoned themselves to Balaam's error. Hence, they will certainly perish in Korah's rebellion. Again, Jude loves triads. He'll speak in these sets of threes, so watch that. These men are dangerous and there's a couple ways this could be rendered, spots or, or uh, reefs. Uh, I think reefs is probably better. They're, they're rocks that come out of the water or are not easily seen by the sailors. At your love feast, feasting without reverence, feeding only themselves, they are waterless clouds carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, twice dead Wild sea waves spewing out the foam of their shame, wayward stars for whom the utter depths of eternal darkness have been reserved. Now, and he quotes from first Enoch, here he goes. Enoch, the seventh in descent, beginning with Adam, even prophesied of them saying, and I quote from first Enoch, or he does, look, the Lord is coming with thousands and thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict every person of all their thoroughly ungodly deeds that they have committed and all the harsh words that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders who go wherever their desires lead them and they give bombastic speeches enchanting folks for their own gain. Well, this isn't a very flattery list, is it? <laughs> uh, Jude has some very harsh words in relationship to the false teachers, it fits with what we've seen in 5.8. But let's look at this now at these next several verses, 11 through 13. As we see here, as we look at this, uh, as we mentioned, uh, we, we have this diabolic trio, a second one. This time it's, it's Cain, it's Balaam, and it's Korah. All right? And on the next page, I tried to provide with you some... Uh, I hope this will be very helpful. You, you must remember our New Testament writers are not writing in a vacuum. Jude makes several assumptions about the readers, right? These readers understand Jewish thought in the first century. They understand the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament. They're very familiar with that. Otherwise, these illustrations would be meaningless, but they pick it up. They understand it very well. And what do they understand? Let me walk through this with you. Uh, And there is one major error here in your notes, and I apologize. In this table, on the far left column, it should be Cain, then Balaam, not Korah. So make that correction, please. Balaam, and then Korah. So I apologize. Um, You notice that Jude changes the order chronologically? It doesn't, it's not how you would expect it to be the way I did it, <laughs> but he changes it. 
right? Uh, Korah is mentioned before Balaam in the Old Testament. Why does he do that? I, I think a lot of scholars are right. Korah is the ultimate example because Korah is immediately judged and sent down to Sheol. Remember the earth, we'll get to that in a second. Remember the earth swallows them whole, boom, they're gone. All right, well, let's go first to Cain. Let's look at this, this fella. Uh, Cain, Genesis 4 talks about this. Remember Cain? He's, how does the Old Testament describe him? Remember? Why is he a bad boy? What do we know? What's the most obvious? What did he do? He murdered. So he's a murderer. Remember what else the text says about Cain? Anger. The text says that he's angry. And do you remember? There's jealousy and disobedience. Remember, even God comes to him and it's like, no, I have nothing to do with you. After the Lord interacts with Cain, what does Cain go out and do? Repent? No. He goes, kills his brother. Yeah, he did. And the text, so the text mentioned he's angry to speak. Now, we have a lot of Jewish writings in the intertestament period. All right? First Enoch, Assumption of Moses, just a, there's a mountain. We also have a mountain of Jewish uh, rabbinic writings that come later after the New Testament, which also give us, can give us insight. And we have Josephus, the Jewish historian from the first century. You've heard that name, right? Uh, Josephus wrote three major works. His biography, which is, <laughs> uh, he loved himself very well. Uh, it, there's the war, which is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then there's what's called the history of the Jews or the antiquities of the Jews. And he retells the stories of the Old Testament. And in so doing, he gives us often pieces that are not there, which seems to be tradition that's being passed down. All right. So tapping into those sources, the second column, I've called it extra biblical. Look how Cain is pictured in Jewish writings. He's seen as one who's guilty of self-love anger, jealous, and greed. And I've given you several sources there that you can look at. So why is Cain a, an interesting example? Look at the text again, Jude verse 11, for they have traveled down, and that, by the way, is in reference to moral conduct. When you say walk in the way of righteousness or traveling, it's an idea that you're, you're, it's your way of life. Uh, and their moral conduct is reminiscent of Cain. And the implication in that chart on page two, Cain becomes a pattern of sin, particularly seen in the false teachers. In other words, Cain becomes what we call a type. Uh, Melchizedek is a type, right? Christ is seen in the order of Melchizedek. Well, these false teachers are seen in the order of Cain. <laughs> Not a compliment. All right? Is, it, is this making sense, what we're doing here? All right, let's go to the next one. Uh, we may not be as familiar with Balaam, Balaam's ass. Turn to Numbers 22. I want to highlight just a couple things for you, Balaam's donkey and this whole scene. <laughs> if you remember, the king of Moab, Balak, is quite shrewd. He wants a prophet to curse Israel. 
and he finds a guy named Balaam who's willing to do it at first. Remember that? It says in verse 15 of 22, Numbers 22, Balaam sent princes more numerous, more distinguished than the first, and they came to Balaam and said, listen, we, we want you to do this. Provide a curse on Israel. So they're, they're offering him some money, etc. And then, first, Balaam does not do it because God had warned him not to do it. Then he does go, and, and it says in verse 23, uh, and as Balaam is riding this donkey, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword. And remember, the donkey smashes Balaam against the wall. He refuses to move. And eventually, Balaam, the donkey, will speak. Remember that? It's Mr. Ed of the Old Testament. You don't want to do this. You can't do this. And so Balaam, eventually in verse 35, says, The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you may only speak the word which I will speak to you. So Balaam went, and it ends up Balaam blesses Israel. Remember that? That doesn't make the king of Moab very happy. It's an interesting scene. And you think, well, maybe Balaam's not that bad after all. As you know, he ended up blessing them. Turn to chapter 31 of Numbers. It's a very interesting scene. And it's a scene that occurs time and time again in the Old Testament. In Numbers 31, watch this, in verse 16. Look, these people, through the counsel of Balaam. Balaam knew he couldn't curse them. He was toast. God wasn't going to allow it to happen. I mean, even so that a donkey's exhorting him not to do it, admonishing him. So what does Balaam do? <laughs> it says, he caused the Israelites to act treacherously against the Lord, and there was a plague. What does he do? He, he has them commit adultery. So Balaam says, fine, I can't curse them, so I'll get them over here, and I'll destroy them another way so that I can have the, the blessing from Balak, the king of Moab. So Balaam becomes an, uh, an, an example of a false teacher. In fact, in Jewish writings, he's often seen as a false teacher, a false prophet, one that's even involved in, in, in uh, dark magic is how Philo describes him. He's seen as a greedy person, and he's seen as a seducer in, in, in many uh, rabbinic writings. And so what, why is Balaam such a great example for our false teachers? Because we see that the false teachers are accused of the same things, aren't they? It's for personal gain and enticing others to practice immorality. Remember, these false teachers are not on the outside. They're in the camp. And uh, I think you only need to look in the news and see we, we've got them in Christianity, a larger umbrella as well, don't we? Individuals who will applaud sexual uh, freedoms, uh, all for the sake of personal gain, etc. And that's the same thing that was happening in the first century. And Judah saying, once again, we have another type. They are like Balaam of old. Questions on this one? This is significant. You got Cain, you got Balaam. You got one more. This one we may not be in this. Oh, I forgot to change the slide. I apologize. This is Korah, all right? You got the idea. Look at number 16. I want you to see this text here just briefly. Number 16. I know many of you know this, but just a reminder. 
If you remember, Korah and company approach Moses in verse 3, and they say, you take too much upon yourself. In other words, you think you're the big dog at the trough. You're not. We're just as significant as you are. And so, you know, we've got a little peeing contest, <laughs> uh, as we might say. Uh, the tensions are high, and Korah says, no, Moses, you are not who you think you are, and et cetera, et cetera. And so Moses says, fine. You get, and, and by the way, Korah, the text tells us he brings 250 prominent people from the community, all right? And he says, Moses says, you guys take a gold censer and you can offer up your sacrifice to the Lord and we'll have Aaron do it for us and we'll see who, which one God accepts. Korah, in his arrogance, takes the challenge, right? And it says in verse 9, does it seem too small a thing to you that God of Israel has separated you from the community of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle? I mean, this is the accusation. So it says in verse 13, it says, it's a small thing you've brought us out of the land. I mean, the accusations are huge towards Moses. And it, the text tells us what happens, right? Uh, the Lord brings, uh, well, he, he opens up the earth. <laughs> uh, Moses says to the Israelites, move away from their, their tents because God's going to do something. And he opens up the ground and he swallows them whole to Sheol, right? Interesting in Jewish thought, look at this. Korah was noted for twisting the law. In fact, some rabbinic writings talk about how he wanted to change the color of the priestly tassels. <laughs> A little dialogue. If you read rabbinic writings, you know uh, these little minutiae discussions. But the, the, the point is, he wanted to change the law. But here's the in interesting thing. Time and time again in Jewish writings, as we see in the Old Testament, Korah was one who created strife among the people against God Almighty. That's our false teachers. And so the implications that I mentioned there, the false teachers have distorted the message of the gospel and have refused to submit to the Lord's authority. That's exactly where we are here, right? And so here you have, you've got Cain, you've got Balaam, and you've got Korah. And Jude says, these are all types Examples of how our false teachers are operating here in our midst. Questions on this. This is huge, right? Then he says, he goes down in, in verse 12 and 13, verses 12 and 13, and he gives us a laundry list of metaphors to describe them. He says in this description, he said they're like hidden reefs at the love feast. Now, what are love feasts? Well, these were dinners that were associated with the communion services. 1 Corinthians talks about these. <clears throat> the reason they were called love, because it was a time of great fellowship and involvement. I know a lot of Korean Christian communities have a dinner after church, and that's kind of their love feast. Any of you in your churches have a dinner after service? It's hard when you have <laughs> some of our larger churches. Uh, that would be quite the smorgasbord. Uh, but in the, in the smaller church, you can do that. And in some churches, they'll have a dinner after the service. And it's kind of like the love feast. And that, that was this idea. And he says, they're in the love feast. But look what he says here. They're dangerous reefs. They're unaware. And until you come upon them, uh, then, then there's destruction. Uh, now, the word could be spots, that they, are, they taint what it's about. 
And certainly we see in the latter part of the verse, they feast without reverence. There's no respect, right? Uh, spot would be like something that's dirty okay. on your clothes, right? A blemish. Yeah, yeah. Um, so these love feasts, so they're hidden reefs. He also mentions, and this is interesting, he said, you're self-serving shepherds. This is not the first time leaders of God's people are accused of shepherding poorly. Do you remember Ezekiel? This is one of my, shouldn't be, but it is one of my favorite texts. I want to show you this. Ezekiel 34. Just turn here, just, just briefly. I know you feel like you're in a sword drill today, all these Old Testament references. <clears throat> but it's just evident that you can't study much of the New Testament without knowing the Old. They go hand in hand. In Ezekiel 34, the Lord is uh, less than pleased <laughs> with Israel, its leaders. This is to the leaders of Israel, a religious, you know, the, the frozen chosen. He says in verse 2, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to the shepherds, this is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Right? Should not shepherds feed the flock? And verse 8, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, my sheep have become prey and have become food for all the wild beasts. There was no shepherd and my sheep did not search for my flock. It, it's, it's in the very context in John's gospel where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Why is he saying that? Because the Pharisees and the other religious rulers who should have been shepherding the flock are not. And Christ said, I'm the good shepherd. I care for my people, which you should be doing. It's the same accusation back in, in Ezekiel, and Jude taps into it here. He says, you guys aren't shepherding. You're leaders of, of the community, but you're more concerned about yourselves. Right? You're gorging on the T-bone, and you're not caring. You feed only yourselves, he says. And furthermore, he says, you're waterless clouds. Living in a country that's dependent on rain. <laughs> uh, now, Israel's had a great year of rain, but they had five years of drought the last several years. Um, in fact, the Sea of Galilee has gone up three meters in the last year, the last since December, which is awesome because it was very low. But in a, in a culture where rain is a premium, uh, the that you, you don't deliver is saying something, right? Your water's, you're carried along by the wind. Whatever whim you have, it takes you along, and you're, you're not giving to the people, right? <clears throat> and Proverbs 25, I have that in your notes. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of gifts he does not give. He also says you're dead fruit trees. And notice, what kind of fruit trees does he say? Or what time of the year? Did you catch it? Autumn. This is past season. Apples come late summer. In other words, <laughs> you're past the season and there's still nothing. And he says a second death. Some scholars think that's a reference to eternal judgment. It's probably more the idea that you are totally useless, completely dead. Not, you know, reminds me of Prince's Bride, right? Almost dead to blaze. Right? You're, you're gone. You're, you're useless. And you, you have no roots. Right? 
Because the wind can move you wherever you want. So, and then he says you're a wild sea wave. You can't be controlled. You're unattainable or unattainable. And in fact, worse yet, you even flaunt it because he uses the idea of the foam on the sea waves, right? The foam of their shame. It's not only bad enough that you're doing this, you flaunt it. You'll love it. And then finally, the other image that he uses is the idea of the wayward stars. Uh, that image is used in a Greco-Roman world, an idea that, that there's no direction, it, they're aimless, is probably the idea here. Though angels are referred to as stars, and notice what the text says, whom utter depths of eternal darkness have been reserved. So it could be a reference back to the fallen angels that he had mentioned earlier in this uh, section. Hard to know. But you get the idea, right? <clears throat> There is no value to where they are. They are like Cain. They are like Balaam. They are like Korah. And as a result, judgment is looming. And how do we know that? He quotes from First Enoch. Again, uh, this book is written between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, you can find a copy of First Enoch in the Dead Sea Scrolls that have been found. If uh, you don't know that story, look it up online. Probably the greatest archaeological find in the last hundred years. And uh, First Enoch is, is contained there. It's, it's a very prominent book in Jewish writings uh, of the first century. It had a lot of influence, and we see it here. And he says that Enoch, the seventh in descent, beginning with Adam... Most likely, he is referring to the generations, and I've listed there for you that Enoch is the seventh. Seventh is very significant in Jewish writings, isn't it? How many days was the uh, creation? Well, six plus the seventh, God rested. Seventh was seen as an idea of perfection and completeness. And I think you could make an argument, this is a whole nother, this is a doctoral dissertation, but seventh also has messianic overtones. Uh, yeah, the seventh one who comes is the final one, the complete one idea. But Enoch being seen as the seventh and highlighting that, and by the way, there may be other generations between it. Um, it was not, it was acceptable to say, you know, David is the son of Albrecht. Well, Albrecht's my grandfather, and I can skip a generation for the purpose of my uh, retelling my lineage. It's purposely narrowed down to seven <clears throat> to show that Enoch, I think, is the perfect one in, in giving this delivery. And I mentioned that there in your notes, that we have this one of, of completion and perfection. And Enoch, all the way back, the complete one, indicated that the Lord is coming. And by the way, we know that from other texts, don't we? Even in the New Testament, the Lord is going to come back with his troops. And he's going to judge. <clears throat> so... Uh, question on Enoch or first Enoch. What do we know about the historical Enoch? Does he die? No. God takes him. Right? He's taken up. He and Elijah. So <clears throat> a unique man, one who sought after the Lord, and I think the seventh is highlighting his perfection. Even he indicated there is judgment that looms for these people. It's as good as done. He said it all the way back there. It still applies today as it did to Cain, to Balaam, and to Korah. And it applies to them. 
It's interesting, in Jude's quoting this reference from 1 Enoch, he makes one change in the text. <clears throat> and that is, look what he says, the Lord is coming. Uh, in 1 Enoch, it's God is coming. Yahweh. So what is he doing? He's taking Christ and making him equal with God. Right? And he's highlighting it's Christ who will come to judge. The man who sits on the judgment throne on end of days is not God the Father, it's the Son, because he paid the price. He will judge. He's the one who's going to return. Right? <clears throat> well, then he states, to execute judgment, and notice this judgment in verse 15, it is exhaustive, isn't it? No sinner is exempt. And he's referring to unbelievers here. No sinner is exempt, no action is overlooked, and no word will be forgotten. It's exhaustive. Look at the number of times all is used in verse 15. Well, he comes, <clears throat> after we look at this, we've seen Enoch's prophecy. He comes to this last part in verse 16, and he gives us the final reasons for this judgment. Even though it dovetails earlier, he comes back to it in verse 16, and he says these people are grumblers and fault finders. Who do we know grumbles in the Old Testament? The Israelites. The Israelites. It's the number one problem with them, right? Grumble, grumble, grumble. That's the whole issue. And I give you several references there. And this grumbling is an indication of a lack of contentment, which I think is the, the greatest plight that affects, uh, that's affecting humanity, <laughs> is contentment, right? If you struggle with contentment, there's a little book by one of my favorite authors, a Puritan author by Thomas Watson. It's called A Divine Contentment. <laughs> it's really good. Pick it up. Contentment. <clears throat> uh, be expected to be convicted. Uh, it's a short little book, but it takes forever because <laughs> every page is a power punch right to the gut. Contentment. There was a problem in the Old Testament. It's a problem in the New and these people are grumblers. And grumbling against who? Look what it says. Who go wherever their desires lead them. The issue is their harsh words, even earlier in verse 15, are against the Lord. Remember that? Remember verse 4? Turn to verse 4. What's he state? <clears throat> they have turned the grace of our God and license for evil and deny our master. Ultimately, their grumbling is not on the circumstances of life. It's the one who's in charge of all the circumstances. It's God Almighty. That's their problem. It's going that direction. He said, that's where your issue lies. <clears throat> your, your, your grumbling is, is against the Lord. And notice that grumbling leads to fault finding, doesn't it? Find a miserable person and they are so critical of others. Like the two usually go hand in hand. And how ironic that they are quick to pick out the sins of others but can't see it in their own eyes, right? Their own look in the mirror, right? And he also says they go wherever their desires lead them. Not only are they complainers, they lack self-control. <clears throat> Again, a bit of irony, right? That which they applaud as freedom in Christ, the liberties they have as a believer, actually are the very things that are enslaving them, right? Their passions. They're going wherever they want. Um, don't you see that, folks who are involved in sin? They're so enslaved by it. You just need, 
you need to be set free from all of this bondage that you're involved with, right? And so the lack of self-control. And finally, we see blasphemy. <clears throat> and that's the bombastic speech uh, idea of here of arrogance. Uh, such rhetoric we see as self-serving because it says enchanting folks for their own gain. I mean, there's ulterior motives in everything they say because it's self-serving. And so here we see these false teachers that the reason they're being judged, not only because they're like those of old, it's because the bottom line is they're serving self, right? Well, <clears throat> thank goodness we're not like Cain and Balaam. <laughs> and we got Orthodox churches and the heretics are outside the camp, so we're, we're okay. I still think there's a lot of application here, right? And I've given you a list. I don't give you references, but just a laundry list, and I'm just going to blitzkrieg through it. But when you look at what is the antithesis of the false teachers as men who are to be leaders in our homes, leaders in our communities, and leaders in our local churches, how should our lives look? Well, I think based on this list, a life marked by passion for Christ and His Word, right? We don't see that with the false teachers. A life willing to submit to God's authority. I mean, think about that. That's a problem with Cain, and it's the problem with the false teachers, right? It's the problem with Korah. Moses, God's representative, I'm not going to submit to him. I'm in charge, right? A life willing to just submit to God's authority. I was talking to my wife, who's a counselor, and she said I, she deals a lot with marital issues. And she said, it is amazing Often the, the problem when you're dealing with a marriage is an unwillingness to submit to God's authority. And it spills over into everything. Right? I mean, we're to love our wives as Christ loves the church, and we love them because as unto the Lord. In other words, they might be unlovely. They might burn the toast. <laughs> I still have to love them because it's to the Lord. Right? And there's been times where I've had to go outside and walk around the house a couple times. I've got to love my wife as Christ as a little church, right? Remind myself, right? And I'm sure my wife has done it a few times too. In fact, I know she has, right? Uh, it's a reminder. Uh, 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 we submit to the Lord's authority, and that, that spills over in everything, right? <clears throat> well, I'm starting to preach. A life that is transparent. I mean, read Jim Collins' a secular work on leadership, right? How the mighty fall. And one of the major issues is a lack of transparency in a company as well as in the leadership, CEOs, etc. Same idea. It's a biblical concept. That's a problem with the false teachers. There are those reefs hidden under the water. There's an ulterior motive to everything they're doing. And that should not mark leaders in the Christian community. We need a life that's transparent. We're not flawless. <clears throat> a life that's marked by contentment. That's a whole landmine, right? A life that's pure and holy. A life that points others to Christ. <clears throat> the, the sad part with these false teachers is not enough that they're wallowing in their own mire, right? They're taking a ton of people with them. That's why Jude is penning this book. He is gravely concerned. The church is on thin ice. And they've got a, a Yehu's over here saying, no, we need to come this way. And... And Jude is seeing the danger that resides, and he's saying, listen, we can't go there. This is how we need to have our lives marked, not like the false teachers. 
Thomas Brooks, Puritan, page four, states, God loves adverbs better than nouns. Not praying only, but praying well. Not doing good, but doing it well. Right? There's a dirty dozen, the dirty three, I guess, the nasty three we looked at today. May we not be lives that start to reflect that. May we be lives that are sold out to Christ. Uh, There's an exercise you can do this week, and it's to compare the qualifications of church leadership in 1 Timothy with the description of the false teachers. It's a very interesting list. There's a lot of uh, opposites. And then is to select one of those areas and say, yeah, this is an area I need to address in my own life, right? Well, it is good to be back. Uh, This was a difficult passage today, so thank you for doing the Bible drill with me. Uh, We were in several passages of of text. Uh, It gets a little more cheery now. (laughs) The latter part, Jude comes back to the saints, and so that's where we're going to wrap this book up in the next two weeks, and it's just rich. So hopefully, Lord willing, we'll see you next week. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, It's easy to study these false teachers and just wag our tongue and say, I'm glad I'm not like them. And, uh, oh, that's just awful. And yet there's this undertow of reminder that, that we need to live lives that are pure, that are transparent, that are content, contented in all things and, and, and resting in you and serving you. Lord, help us to do that. And as Brooks stated, may we do it well. It's not just going through the motions, but glorifying you Father, thank you for these men. Go with them this week. I know some of them have some heavy burdens, health-wise, family issues, job-wise. Just be with them. Guide them. In Jesus' name, amen.